You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Avram Kivalevich, and this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim. Dr. Juni, we've had a lot of good feedback from the last programs that we've had dealing with situations and, and social situations in Eretz Yisrael and in the United States, inclusivity of the homosexual community. I want to take some of our conversations that we've had and lead them to, I think, a, a natural progression to lead them towards the inclusivity of uh, the development disabled and perhaps mentally disturbed parts of our community. Uh, specifically, uh, how things have changed over the years. We know that the attitude that Jewish leaders, families have had towards dealing with children and then adults with special needs has altered in a major way from when we were growing up. And, and today, generally, I have to speak out straightforward that it's, it's beautiful what we do see. The type of infrastructure, the type of support that development disabled children and adults receive, as well as people who are suffering from various mental illnesses. And the community realizes that we can't just shudder and, and lock people up and pretend that it doesn't exist. However, things are very still complex. And I know that parents and other organizations are still going to call on people like yourself to provide direction and to give them a way that a better life can be had for everyone. So if you will, Dr. Juni, if you could start telling us a little bit about some of your experiences with the development disabled person, um, and maybe some of the issues that come up specifically because of difficulties in articulation that occur. I know that a crucial part of a therapist's job is to elicit answers and to be able to read what those answers mean. When those answers are not articulated in the standard style, it calls for a certain special type of wisdom to be able to comprehend what's going on and also to comprehend what's going on with the family behind it. So why don't you start us off and, and tell us about some of your real experiences and some of your thoughts in general about how we're doing. Okay, so thank you again, Rabbi, for having me here. Um, as usual, we, you start off with a large um, question, which is uh, multifaceted. I will try to address some of the issues, and then we can try to drive this train together. Um, there are many, many issues that come up in all kinds of psychiatric diagnostics. There are many issues that come up in family evaluations. And there are many, of course, that come up in the area of disability or psychiatric illness. Um, it's hard to say what is the key that comes up, what's the most disturbing aspect here. So I will just touch on a couple and then try to take it from there. Um, one of the problems that come up on diagnostics, and then you have to understand, I usually will not deal with people who bring in a family member and say, this person has developmental disabilities, what can you do? Um, my field is differential diagnostics. 
which means I usually get involved when there are a number of factors that um, are comorbid and are causing problems at the same time, and the issue is to, to sort them out. Um, but there's no question that I see people with disabilities just as I see people who have um, physical disabilities or people who have um, any kind of psychiatric issues. Just because you have developmental, but you also don't have many other problems. And what I usually do is I try to sort them up and come up with a diagnostic formulation which lends itself to a certain kind of intervention. So let me just at random pick one point that's often a, a sticking issue within the family dynamics, and that is the assumption, even though families are very much devoted to bringing out the best and the highest developmental caliber in family members who suffer some kind of disability, and that is the attitude that somehow the people are less than complete people, which means that you can almost, um, in, in extreme cases, you can talk about them as if they're not there. You can talk about them in the third person, which is a syndrome that we used to have very often by doctors in hospitals when they'd come in and they would address the patient as if it was an object rather than a person. So that is simply something that tends to become very problematic in families because developmentally this delayed people and people with psychiatric issues have the same emotions as anybody else does. Sometimes they have a hard time expressing themselves, but they definitely understand what's going on around them. And then people can sometimes assume or family members sometimes assume that they don't really have to address these people because these people really don't understand or are not quite with it. They're pretty much with it and understand it and understand what's happening. And then by ignoring that, that can become a powder keg and cause all kinds of difficulties. Let me just throw out another couple of points. Uh, one is that um, family members, in as much as they are very much devoted and actually loving of, say, siblings or children usually who have disabilities, um, there is also a certain amount of annoyance, frustration, and even anger on their part. Some of it is rational. I'm not saying it's justified. I'm saying some of it is rational. And then we can think in terms of siblings who, because the special member of the family requires um, a, a large amount of attention, a large amount of resources, that by definition means that the other family members will get less. Now, there isn't a very large step from the realization that, yes, this is happening, but it's not the person's fault, to then go ahead and be angry anyway. Anger is not a rational reaction. Anger is an emotional reaction. And it's an emotional reaction to frustration and to things not going your way. So even though the person with special needs um, requires more time and more resources and it's much easier for people without the needs to get along without so many resources or time, they still will resent it. And that anger problematically does not get expressed overtly. Most of the time or a large part of the time, at least in terms of the problem um, diagnostics I've had to do, the actors themselves don't realize that they're angry. And furthermore, they don't realize that they express their anger not necessarily directly, but in passive-aggressive ways. And the victim, which is the disabled person or the person with psychiatric illnesses, 
picks that up loud and clear. It's very obvious to see. Often it's nonverbal. Often it's by, uh, it seems to be almost by chance that it comes out. But it's quite clear there's anger and resentment. And in terms of therapeutic intervention, which may in fact be paradoxical to what the layperson will think, the way to solve this is first to get the resentment out in the open. And the initial reaction of traditional families would be, oh no, we don't want to go there. We'd much rather just ignore it or say it's not there. And then you have basically an uphill fight on the part of the therapist, not mine, thank God, but the person who's going to do the intervention to get first the family to realize that they resent it. And then the biggest boogeyman comes up when it's evident that even on the parts of the devoted parents, there's a certain amount of anger and resentment. I mean, essentially, in some families, the, uh, the life of the uh, parent couple is totally usurped with the appearance of somebody with special needs. They require a lot of attention, a lot of time, a lot of stigma comes in, a lot of inability for the parents to do what it is they would want to do with their spare time because their spare time ceases to exist. So there's a lot of what we call ambivalence going on here. And most people who are not professional psychiatrists or psychologists don't quite realize that that ambivalence is there. And then when they do realize, then they start feeling guilty. They start feeling upset. They start feeling that somehow they're inadequate. And then we have a large chain here. So what often starts off with the diagnostic of a person Say you come in and say, I have a developmental disabled child and I have no idea, but he's angry and he's throwing things and he's yelling and he, he can't understand why. It doesn't take much to understand what's going on. But once you've explored it, then you basically have a basket case of a family on your hand rather than just individual because they realize that they have not been acting in a way that's really so lovey-dovey and emotional in a positive sense, but that they have been expressing themselves negatively. So that would be like a, a major, um, shall we say, almost prototypical aspect of a family with a member with special needs. So, so really, it's, it's, my original question is, 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 is totally shot through uh, fallacies. In other words, I was, my question to you was, can you even separate the two? What you have found in your experiences, and almost to a T, is that when a special needs person is being problematic, what's behind it has been a inadequacy of the family to have really registered and properly integrated and really accepted with themselves and been able to really, they might convince themselves that they're loving their child, but it's love that's laced with a lot of anger and resentment, as you're saying. So we really can't... Okay, I, I, want, I want to qualify that, please. It's not that the problem is that they're being angry it's the problem that they don't realize that they're ambivalent yes. because they have every right to be upset. Anger is something else because anger we often reserve for people who are doing things deliberately to get on our nerves. And no one will say that the, this, the, the problematic person is doing it deliberately. But even anger is often expressed when people just frustrate you. And it's not something that's damning from a healthy point of view to say, yes, I resent this. Yes, this is bothering me. Of course, I will do everything I can, but I would much rather not have had this problem. And most people who are not trained in mental health have a hard time accepting negative feelings towards someone they love. And yet I always say, and this has nothing to do with disability, that 
we all have negative feelings towards everyone we love. <laughs> Hopefully, the balance is more towards the love than the anger or the hate. But it is impossible to go through a, a um, close, familial, intimate relationship with anybody without having quite a few exemplars of things that bother you and get you angry. It doesn't make you want to destroy the other person. It doesn't make you want to hurt them. But yes, there is some negativity there. And that's something that we have to realize. That's, that's quite a challenge. So, so as we both know, and I think and you have written about this, and I, I mentioned it to you uh, uh, just recently, one of your papers that you wrote in the past about a family uh, that was dealing with a development disabled child. And you wrote very interestingly, and I think presciently about the family dynamic. And we'll talk about that maybe in a minute or so. But we know that things have changed since you wrote those papers. We know that there has been so much advancements in terms of places like we know in the United States, like Hask and other type of uh, outlets that are so inclusive. And there's been training that's been done for young people and older people to know how to be loving and caring, to treat people like human beings and to respect them. But what it, sound, it sounds that what has not occurred in the last 50 years that maybe should have occurred was a, 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 a better understanding and, and counseling for the families that let's say they know because of uh, in utero, they know that they're going to be dealing with a child with, with, with major health issues. Or even when they discover that the child does have this development disabled issue, which isn't going to go away, they don't seem to be prepped well enough. They don't seem to have gone through, yes, the, the, the health professionals and the, and the institutions that are out there are wonderful in terms of how they, they're supportive and loving and giving, but there seems to be a need, you would say, for better counseling and better understanding when, when parents are confronted with this reality, and it should really start in utero or from day one when they discover that, and, 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 right? Because it's, it's the way you're describing it, most of the issues come up from their lack of being able to implement proper the proper ideas within themselves about how to love and take care and how to deal with their own anger and deal with their frustration, being honest about it. So I think, would you say we need more counseling for these parents? Uh, and that would maybe reduce the incidence of, 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 of those kids acting out and becoming a problem later. Okay, so I, I want to comment on a couple of things. First of all, I would not say that most of the problems come from the um, family's reaction. I would say most of the problems or challenges that come up when somebody is in the family with special needs come up because of the challenge of the special needs. So I wouldn't say that's what's going on, really. All right, we appreciate the fact that you are a person on call constantly. Um, okay, also, I was waiting for Jewish... I'm sorry, yes, unfortunately, and um, yeah, okay, let's not go there. Um, I was waiting for the Jewish shoe to drop, and it did, so once you get involved with the Jewish shoe, you mentioned Hask, I would also mention up there um, the um, Yachad um, Enterprise, the OU, which is quite central, and just for the record, both Hask and Yachad and quite a few other organizations are keenly aware 
of the um, special needs of a family that has a special needs member, and they are working on it. But this is terms, you're talking about general shifts from X number of years ago. So let me mention a couple of points. Um, there has been a major shift in Western society towards appreciating diversity. And what that basically means is that there are several, there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak. And there's more than one way to um, have an existence that's meaningful and purposeful and making sense. And not all people who are well-adjusted have to look the same. That's the principle of diversity. Um, I guess sociologically, you can call it a principle of heterogeneity rather than homogeneity, that we expect people to be different and that there is no way really to qualitatively uh, assign a higher uh, functioning to one type versus the other type, so long as they meet some kind of general criteria of humanity or human function. Um, there is a difference in the evolution towards diversity within the general Western population and in traditional religious um, communities, okay? And I, when, I, when I'm talking now, it's not so much a Jewish shoe that I'm talking about that dropped, but the uh, traditional Jewish shoe, or maybe even the Orthodox point of view. Um, in Orthodoxy, there's a notion of things are supposed to be a certain way. And unfortunately, that certain way doesn't have any kind of... Um, choices. The certain way is a specific way. So ideally, let's say for a boy in some very orthodox communities, you're supposed to be someone who has excellent um, uh, um, characteristics. You're somebody who knows how to um, analyze Gemara and commentaries, etc., and behaves a certain way and ends up being uh, the, uh, the uh, maybe in some societies, the, the uh, sage or the tzaddik of the entire generation. Those are ideals, and you work towards that. You take a, an orientation like that, and you throw into the mix someone who is born, who has limitations, who will never be X or Y or Z, who will never learn how to read a Rashi, who will never learn how to read Hebrew, who will barely be able to take care of themselves. Not to say that they're less of a person. I have to accentuate that. They are a real person. They think, they feel, they understand but they can perform certain um, tasks or reach certain goals that this society considers to be quintessential of what a person is. You take that as a principle and then ergo, the person then is less than a fully functioning person. That kind of attitude, whether you express it to the person with disabilities or whether you don't express it, it comes through in flying colors and bright lights. They know it. And when they hear this from you, perhaps not in words, perhaps non-verbally, perhaps by insinuation, perhaps by comparing the kinds of adulations you have for different siblings versus them, that, first of all, it hurts like hell. And second of all, it gives them a feeling, rightfully so, that you don't value them as much as others. And that causes a lot of stress within the person and then if you want to add to the formula that perhaps this particular person doesn't have the temperament or even the, um, the um, intellectual faculties to express themselves in a way that you can understand, you can expect expressions of negativity that will spill over and then become a major management problem, both for the family and for the victim, if you wish.
So again, there definitely is a movement, especially with the organizations that you mentioned, like Yahad or the OU or HAST, to make families more cognizant of what the dynamics are, to make them express themselves more, to make them be in touch with what bothers them about the situation. But I would say the Orthodox community, at least the Jewish Orthodox community, is very slow in keeping up with the push towards diversity that's going on in general Western society. Well, again, we talked about that last time in terms of things spilling over into orthodoxy a little bit later than it does in the rest of society. But I know that in one area, I think there's a a tremendous amount of progress has been made. Uh, Again, it's almost a horror story when we go back to the, uh, let's say, 40, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. But, uh, you know, I have personal experience in this field, uh, having a sister with developmentally disabled and who was institutionalized. And there was always a sense uh, that pervaded even in my family, there was, which was never necessarily expressed to me openly, but your paper really uh, put it there, the paper that you wrote so many years ago, that there was a sense of guilt that many parents had, I think especially post the Holocaust, that the mothers felt that they had failed in their role of producing offspring, producing healthy offspring. And what would occur was a mother's guilt and shame. um, And it it generated a shame that permeated within the family where this child, although was somewhat taken care of, was this dark, ugly secret. And the tendency to institutionalize those children, instead of keeping those children as part of the family dynamic, and being loved, although imperfect, imperfectly, with those issues. I mean, that was the dark ages, Dr. J. Those ages where we had mothers routinely hating themselves, fathers disassociating themselves over this failure, and a family harboring the secret. I mean, we have, I think we're light years past that, and right, and you have to admit, we're not to the promised land using a Martin Luther King type of thing. We're we're not there yet, but we definitely are, are way past where we were. And I think I think we could say, and again, I, I think you yourself uh, are a shining exemplar of that. That 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 the, the idea of when when, when a, the only disabled person is part of your family, that that you need to be very open about it. And, and, and secrecy and, and, and self-hatred is, is, is the key to a very destructive thing, which I think we've passed that role, right? I think, I think, we, I think we, that mountain, I think we were, we, we've been able to, to climb and get over. What do you okay. say? Okay, so let me just comment. You're talking about me being a shining example. We have a developmentally um, challenged daughter who has uh, done quite well for herself and has made our family extremely proud. So just to let the listeners know what it is that you're insinuating here. But let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, um, um, the keeping kids in the closet phenomenon, which is something that has dogged um, Orthodox um, Jewish society more so than overall society. Um, I've um, had occasion sometimes to do a complicated psychiatric study where um, this is about 
a place that's roughly a 10 minute walk from very orthodox Williamsburg, where I was called in to deal with a suicidal uh, young lady who turned out to be psychiatrically disturbed. And she turned out, this was a home that specialized in Hispanic runaways. And this was somebody who spoke to me a fluent Yiddish and told me that she has a Hasidish family that lives on Lee Avenue, you know, a 10 minute walk away where no one except for the parents knows she even exists. And she is kept in this institution, a Hispanic institution, which has um, dangerous um, youngsters, which she was not a dangerous person, at least not dangerous to others. And she was essentially in the closet. So let me just say that um, the, real, the real elephant in these societies is shidducha, um, marriageability of the children. And there is a stigma on the part of prospective um, partner, marital partners if a, um, a prospective groom or bride has a family member who is problematic. And there are two categories. There's developmental delay and psychiatric. And I think a lot of the strides that were made by Jewish health organizations um, worked much better in the developmentally delayed population and less so in the psychiatric population. In other words, as people are becoming um, more and more sophisticated in terms of the uh, origins and ideology developmental delays, they are realizing it could be due to certain kinds of medications that were taken, certain kinds of in utero mishaps that occurred. So there is more allowance for developmental delay. There's less allowance for psychiatric um, difficulties. Now, if you have somebody who has psychiatric difficulties, that's more the reason to put them in the closet because it can hurt you. So again, this is true of overall society as well, who don't necessarily see the shidduchim aspect as a central part of their goal in raising children, but it's especially true within the Orthodox community. Um, I just want to throw something out, and that's, I referred to it before, but I think we should really make it very bold. There is an underlying feeling on family members of people with special needs that somehow the person is not a totally legit person, that somehow they don't have to be reckoned with the same person somebody else is reckoned with. Maybe it's based on the fact that they may not understand which is not always the case because we're t talking even about people who are on wheelchairs or people who can't hear or they can't see. They are treated as if they don't quite understand and that you can pull the wool over their eyes or you can say things just behind their back, even though they're standing right in front of you. There's a devaluation in a sense, and that devaluation is very keenly felt by the victims. And I call them victims quite openly. They are victims. They are victims in a family that actually loves them because loving is not inconsistent with victimizing. And in fact, if you look at stats, most of the um, uh, violence that occurs to people occurs from family members and not family members who hate them, family members who love them. But somehow um, the family environment is something that fosters intense feelings both positive and negative. And the solution, again, if I'm repeating myself, I am sorry, but I know with patients I have to repeat myself 20 times so <laughs> I can do it twice here. 
the notion is recognizing that you are ambivalent is the key to being able to manage relationships. Deluding yourself that, of course, everything is fine. That's not the way to go. And I can tell you my hackles get raised. I mean, I've, um, I'm now in Yerushalayim. I have um, um, some family that can be classified as extremely religious and part of the very um, Haredi community. And of course, when a child is born with disabilities, I sometimes, it's harrowing to say, wow, you have no idea. We have a child with disabilities and you love them or whatever. And I say, are you bothered? Does it get you upset? Of course not. This is the most phenomenal thing that can possibly happen. And then they will cite some kind of outlier theories that if somebody is disabled, it's because God sent down this special soul and whatever <laughs> kinds of theologies that go on, which um, are questionable to me. But when I see them so happy and so exuberant, I say, wow, we have an explosion coming here. Wow. Because as soon as the bubble is popped, they'll say, wow, I actually hate. And if I hate, I'm angry. And who am I angry at? I'm angry at God. I'm this. I'm not a good Jew. I'm not a good whatever. And that becomes horrible. So, um, And again, I have no hope. Some of my cousins, I have no hope for. They will go on living in la-la land until they explode. And when they explode, they will not just be halfway out of la-la land. They'll be totally in the other part of the land. So that's scary. Well, I think what you're saying is really powerful because, you know, I, I think the standard way of looking at this is that we're not in the dark ages, that now we see the special beauty of having a special needs child and how loving it is and how wonderful that human being is. And I know with my own sister that I felt that she was <laughs> gave me the most honest responses that you could have from another person. And, and, and most of us, I think before we're hearing this, say, we've just got to be positive. We've got to realize that we've got a special task on our hands. We have to realize, as you say, we have the special neshama, how beautiful it is. And I would have said until what you said a minute ago, that that could be a way to neutralize the shidduch fear. Because... The reason why it was considered the ultimate horror story was people said, having a child, do you want to have a child that's like that? Do you want to submit yourself to that sort of hell? And, 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 and therefore, showing people that it's not hell, but it's rather a beautiful challenge that could, that could increase, your, increase your emotional quotient and cause you to be a more loving human being actually makes it less of a big secret. Now, you're saying, Dr. J., that although that's a good utopian idea, it doesn't really conform with the resentment and the issues that are going to curdle up inside of a family. And you can't just buy into that fantasy, right? I think that's, I'm pretty much restating your point. Yeah, I, if I may, let me try to just beat this horse to be a little bit deader yet, okay? So I'll give you just an example from a totally other clinical perspective, okay? I am very leery of couples who love each other and find nothing to complain about. I am very leery about that. Not because I think that there should be problems, but because I feel that people who live together will inevitably have some issues. And when they say everything is so great and phenomenal, and I wish this on, any, on everybody, and I can't understand that other people have problems, what I see over there is a major inability to deal with a certain aspect of yourself. And if I dare say, I feel that the relationship they have has to be superficial because it's not being sincere. It's being idealistic 
and removed from what's going on in day-to-day -day life. And that if these people could have a couple of little fights at least, maybe one big fight you know, every two months, but a couple of little fights or express to say, you know, everything looks well, except this bothers me. Is this enough for me to hate you? No, but it bothers me and it bugs me. And I wish it wasn't like that. I'm not going to break up the relationship because of that, but come on. Yeah, some other things bother me too. And I come to think of it, maybe six or seven things bother me. That's much healthier and much more straightforward and much more conducive to a genuine positive relationship than one, than one that's built on, wow, this is like, um, uh, this person is like a, a melech and this is a malka and things are just great. And it's mamish, you know, the shkin is here and God is with us, etc. It's not real. So I'm giving you that just as it's trying to remove the context from the developmental disability or the idea that there's a special needs person in the family, that we have to realize that there are thorns everywhere. Flowers have thorns. Everything has thorns. So to me, it scares me when things are like, wow, things are just so phenomenal and great. And I say, I don't want to be there when this paper uh, um, um, tower falls over because it's ain't going to be pretty. Well, I, I, again, I, you've given us a certain sense of hope and also a, a, a warning. And I think, uh, again, counseling and, and understanding is always necessary to get through the messiness of any interpersonal relationship, um, and specifically when you are handed the challenge uh, of a person with special needs. So, Dr. J, I think we've, as you say, we've ridden this horse, but I think we've, it might be, uh, it might be very uh, close to expiring, but I think the horse has done its job in terms of pushing forward uh, a little bit of a different perspective. And, and I think a perspective that, 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 that is going to help. Um, and I think that that is something that uh, we're going to always need those type of strengths. So that's it, my friends, uh, for today. Uh, we hope to be able to be back again uh, next time with another episode of From Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.